There's no better time to become a member of the DSR network. Later this month, we'll be announcing a major media partnership to our ever-expanding lineup of podcasts, bringing you even more insight and analysis than ever before. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, an evening newsletter recapping the day's top stories, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of October, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SPOOKY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SPOOKY. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. It's that time of the week when we turn our attention to intelligence and intelligence-related issues with our spy show, uh, I'm David Rothkopf, one of your co-hosts. The other co-host, of course, uh, um, is the, the master of all issues associated with the Spy Show, our friend Mark Polymeropoulos, uh, uh, formerly of a long and distinguished career at the Central Intelligence Agency. How are you doing, Mark? Well, you know, what a what a couple of weeks. Unbelievable. You know, when when the whole world Certainly the administration, but many others want to turn, you know, east towards China, towards Asia. We are back to my old <clears throat> neck of the woods and uh, and talking about things that I think nobody had on their bingo card for 2023, which is a possible regional war. So tough times, um, but important times. And and really, you know, one of the things I, you know, why I think this this will be a great discussion is intelligence is going to play such a role um, in this conflict in the in the days and weeks to come. Well, yeah. Um, and, and failures of intelligence have pay, played a big role in it so far. Um, uh, we are joined today by uh, a great guest, Charles Lister, who's a senior fellow and the director of Syria and uh, essentially the Countering Terrorism and Extremism Programs at the Middle East Institute. How are you doing today, Charles? Uh, I'm great. Uh, thank you so much for, for having me on. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. All right. Well, let me start off with one of the two big issues that I think we're going to look at uh, uh, today. One has to do with countering terrorism and extremism. The other has to do with regional escalation. But let me start with the countering terrorism and extremism. Um, uh, As is often the case in the wake of big, shocking terror attacks, uh, there is uh, an impetus for political leaders um, to promise big, sweeping responses. Um, and uh, often those are over large or unachievable. Uh, right now, we have uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who is leading a unity cabinet in Israel, saying that his goal is to eradicate Hamas, of which there are several tens of, tens of thousands of people, um, uh, and expressing that his desire to do that will be manifest in a invasion of Gaza. Uh, I have two questions for you. 
is eradicating Hamas, as opposed to decapitating Hamas or cutting off Hamas's supplies, making it impossible for Hamas to play the role it's played, uh, the right goal, and is it an achievable goal? So that's a great question. It's, it's the question, uh, obviously, given everything that's happening right now. And I think, I guess the first thing to say is it's 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 completely predictable and it's totally understandable that this is the language that's being embraced, given the scale um, and, frankly, the unprecedented nature of Hamas's attack around two weeks ago. So none of this language should necessarily surprise us. It's certainly the kind of language that that we forget my accent, by the way, I am an American, that we as the as the U.S., uh, embraced after 9-11. Um, it is a, it is a natural response to what we've seen occur. But I think at the same time, uh, there's an extent to which um, some, you know, you've got to take sort, sort of a deep breath and, and think about the long-term strategic picture here. I mean, for starters, Hamas is not, in my opinion, an organization that can be truly wiped out. I think no doubt the Israelis have the capability to significantly, uh, you know, deal it a fairly, fairly kind of crippling tactical defeat. But in so doing, and given the fact that we're dealing with one of the most, if not the most densely populated area uh, in the world, in so doing, the Israelis will have created conditions, again, in my opinion, that will allow Hamas 2.0 to reappear, if not immediately, some short to medium term afterwards. And that's the inherent challenge here. That's frankly Hamas's uh, masterstroke, which is there's absolutely no doubt in launching an attack like this that Hamas will have known they will have been inviting a catastrophic response like this. But I think their calculation is, given the conditions inside Gaza, given the long and extensive history of the Palestinian cause, given the fact that the region would likely you know, uh, shift in terms of uh, public opinion in the public on this issue, that in the long term, they will both survive and potentially prosper as a result of what's to come. And I think that's the, the, the billion dollar challenge that has been put on the Israelis. And it is why the Biden administration has taken this kind of two pronged approach. The public position is 100%, no question, we're supporting Israel and its right to respond. Privately, right almost from day one, we've been sending the private message of restraint. Um, that you must do this, you must tackle Hamas, you must significantly weaken them, but um, with a mind to to where this goes in the long term. Um, and, you know, that is that is where we are. So from a CT perspective, no question. With the right intelligence, we can take out all of the leadership, all of the mid-level command and significantly cripple Hamas. But but given the density of the of the of of the Gaza Strip, given the challenge of going in on the ground for a sustained period of time, and given the complications, if this goes regional, um, there's still that sort of long-term advantage, frankly, that, that Hamas benefits from. And, we, you know, we can string along that conversation about what Hamas 2.0 would look like. Um, but I think we've already, frankly, had a little taste of it um, over the last two or three years. This is a different organization, I think, in the way that it's acting than we've seen um, in the even the recent past. Yeah, I want to ask the same question of you, Mark, because you spent a substantial portion of your career involved in what the United States, uh, at least during the Bush administration, for, referred to as the global war on terror. Uh, and if there is one lesson from the 20 years of, of that war, uh, it seems to be if you want to um, promote the growth of terrorist groups in the world, uh, try to eradicate them. 
uh, because you know we went in, we uh, we went after Al Qaeda, we killed its leadership often, we killed, uh, 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 destroyed many many of those involved in the nine uh, eleven attacks. Uh, but today, there are more terrorists in the world than there were on 9-11-2001. There are more al-Qaeda groups. There are more al-Qaeda members. Uh, and other groups like ISIS came out of this. So uh, how, do, how, do you, how do you balance that? So I think I, I, I disagree with that, that premise there. Um, because well, how can you disagree with the premise? It's true. All the well, estimates, I, I, all the estimates say there's not that, more al-Qaeda now. Well, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, al-Qaeda in Africa, um, ISIS groups that spun off of al-Qaeda, et cetera, et cetera. Not the original mothership of al-Qaeda, but spin-off groups. See, I, I would, again, I would, I would challenge that in the sense of threats to the United States, threats to the United States homeland. And, you know, we can, we can debate our, our policies. Uh, and let, let's put aside Iraq, but in, in terms of Afghanistan and tang, staying too long. But, you know, make no mistake, when it comes to al-Qaeda, uh, al-Qaeda and its fighters in, the, in Pakistan, um, you know, there was a sustained counterterrorism campaign in which we, you know, primarily using airstrikes, uh, not only kind of decapitated the leadership, but also hit all the foot soldiers. And, and there was no second attack on America. And so I think in the counterterrorism world, kind of the prosecution against Al Qaeda is seen as a as a success. Um, now, let's let's in, in flipping to, to Israel, though, you know, you, you make some both you and Charles make some really good points. So, you know, Israelis have a big conundrum here. There's no one in my old world that, that uh, believes that the Israelis shouldn't act, um, uh, uh, which includes some type of incursion into Gaza. Now, the question is, what does that look like? Uh, uh, but ultimately, nobody I talk to, whether it's you know, in, in any kind of current or former capacity in the, in the counterterrorism uh, uh, arena, thinks that Israel uh, uh, can't go in. There's a variety of reasons for that. Uh, one other thing I'll just, I'll just throw out also is that this, you know, the notion that, that, I mean, it's been promulgated by Hollywood, but, you know, and it, and it was it was kind of foundational for the Israeli people as well, that the IDF and, and, and Mossad were, you know, were all powerful. That's been shattered. And, you know, the deterrent capability, deterrence capability of Israel is, is gone. So I think they're going to have to act. I think the Biden administration, what they're doing in counseling patients is not necessarily saying you, you don't go in. Um, I think they're saying that let's wait for the hostage diplomacy to work out, but just be very careful in doing it. And, you know, perhaps they're building some more time to, to gather intelligence. But. I'd be very surprised ultimately if if there was not an incursion uh, into Gaza. Just you know, purely from the counterterrorism perspective, that is the only way um, uh, to go in uh, and to and to, to frankly kill as many uh, Hamas operatives. Which number? I don't know. Thirty thousand now, maybe ten thousand in Gaza City. Who knows how many they've killed already? Um, uh, but I think, but but ultimately, uh, uh, you know, I'd be very surprised if this doesn't occur. And the one, one last piece on this too, in terms of the, the request to delay, you know, I've worked with the Israelis for a long time. There's been many issues where we tackled a, an intelligence problem um, together, whether it's the Iranian nuclear issue or going back to 2007, the North, there was a, there was the, the Syrians built a North Korean or the North Koreans built a Syria react, a reactor in the Syrian desert. Um, there was questions on what to do about it. Um, the Bush administration didn't want Israel to hit it. And then one day we woke up and it was gone. So you know, at, at, at times the Israelis are going to listen, at times they will not. And I just do wonder what, when their patience is the wrong word. But ultimately, I think they're going to act in their own interests, uh, even with uh, some, some U.S. pressure. Uh, okay, great. Well, do you, do you have a question for Charles? I, I do, I do. And I think, you know, there's, there's I mean, there's, I, have a, I, have a, I have a lot of questions for, for Charles. But one of the things that, that I think, uh, you know, Charles certainly focuses on Syria. It was funny when, when I 
first wanted Charles to come on the air, it was to talk about Syria, which was, you know, a country which I actually, uh, uh, and, and a people I grew to, uh, I served there and I, and I, I love the Syrian people, certainly not the Syrian regime, but we've kind of moved away from talking about U.S. policy in Syria till today. But the, the key thing I think is, is uh, uh, and certainly something the administration is concerned about is, is Iranian proxies and what they're doing. And I, I wanted Charles, uh, I wanted to hear Charles' views on, you know, there is, the, the Iranians via their proxies are, are now regularly attacking U.S. forces at bases in Syria and Iraq, and we are doing nothing in return. And that actually concerns me. Now, you can see why we're not doing it, because they're very scared, of, uh, worried about, about escalation. But, you know, we can move assets to the reason we can wag our finger and say don't. But is it going to take a couple Americans to get killed in, in one of our bases in the region there, particularly in Syria? And so, so I guess I'm surprised that we haven't struck back at the proxies. We've done so before. What are your thoughts on that? And, and in essence, does our lack of action on hitting back at the proxies actually um, embolden the Iranians more? So this is a great, that's also a equally great question. I mean, I think in the last four days, there's been nearly a dozen Iranian proxy attacks on, on US positions in Iraq and Syria. Massive uptick in what we've seen over the past two or three years. Um, one of them has indirectly led to the death of a US contractor uh, who had a heart attack during uh, one of the attacks in Iraq. Um, I think the Iranians have been emboldened by their relative free will to target our facilities for a while. So this isn't a new thing. Uh, or if we remember our memories back to March, uh, March this year, General Carrillo and his posture review uh, shortly after a fatal Iranian attack on a U.S. base in northeastern Syria, made a fairly unsubtle remark where he uh, announced that Iranian proxies had hit U.S. bases 84 times since January 2021. He didn't say it was since President Biden had entered the Oval Office, but that was his point. And in a follow-up question, which I have very little doubt was uh, was not pre uh, pre-planned and pre-rehearsed, he was asked how many times the U.S. troops had been given permission to respond, and his answer was four. Um, so 84 attacks, four U.S. responses. Do the math. Um, now we've had a dozen in four days, roughly, uh, including one U.S. fatality, and we haven't responded. So I've actually asked this question to a number of senior officials uh, offline over the past few days. And to be honest, they, there is no clear-cut answer of when we respond. Uh, I think ordinarily after 12 attacks, we would have done something uh, to send the message, cut it out. But given how tense things are region-wide and our overall U.S. message has been take a deep breath, calm down and deterrence, um, the idea that we would be adding to a dynamic of escalation, even though it was in response to something, uh, appears to be some, something that we don't want to do. So I don't know, frankly, I, I suspect if a U.S. serviceman or woman was killed, we would have to respond. Um, we're in this sort of tragic situation where, for some reason, contractors don't seem to count, even if they are citizens. Um, we act when it's, a, when it's a serviceman or woman, but not a contractor. And there's an re extensive record for that. Um, but I, I suspect that is the red line. There's another dynamic here, though, that from an Iranian perspective, most many of these attacks have not been in retaliation for U.S. actions in the region in the past. They have seen U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria as a soft target in retaliation for Israeli strikes in Syria. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. It's like we're the, we're the soft point because we, are, we are, more than often than not, we don't reply. Um, 
but it adds to the wider geopolitical tension in the region and the idea that from an Iranian perspective, US and Israel are one and the same. Um, and of course, out of this, if one of these attacks got through and killed several American servicemen and women, there's a pretty strong likelihood that in DC, there'd be pressure to then withdraw, in particular from Syria. Um, and so the Iranians are more than aware of that dynamic too, and that would add to their kind of geopolitical perceived advantage. So, so let me just press you a little bit on, on that too, because I, I gave you my opinion on what we should do. I think we should, re- what do you think we should do? You know, that's, you know if, if you were sitting at the NSC right just now, one, one second. what would you advocate? Yeah, just who we, the US? The, the, the US, yeah. what should the US do in terms of attacks on our, on our, by Iranian proxies on our bases? You know, uh, you know what, what, would you, what would your advice be? I would say at this point, we should hit back, uh, but in, uh, in a way that doesn't necessarily uh, allow Iran to, to, to present it as an escalatory step. Hit a, uh, we- you know, a weapons depot, weapons cache in, uh, in eastern Syria, of which there are dozens, uh, and in so doing, uh, stand a good chance of not necessarily killing uh, any Iranian or Iranian proxies, but to send a message and to reinforce the message of deterrence. We're in an extra, extra delicate situation. Uh, if we weren't, I would probably suggest something that's slightly more, uh, slightly more aggressive. But we do have to tread carefully here. We don't want to be seen or allow Iran to present us as the reason for why a regional war started. So we do have to tread carefully, but at the same time, there has to be a red line. Um, you know, the only other thing I'd throw in here is that there may also be a added geopolitical complication here, which, if we're talking Iraq and, and Syria, is the Russians. Um, and back in March, when the Iranians killed a, a U.S. contractor and injured about a dozen American soldiers in, uh, in northeastern Syria, I'm utterly convinced there was a Russian uh, complicity in that attack. Um, I was in the base that was attacked several days beforehand with General Carrilla. Uh, I saw the air defense systems, the Avenger uh, systems that were in place to protect that base from Iranian drones. They were all online. Uh, they were switched off for four hours uh, for routine maintenance that happens apparently about every six months. And in that four-hour window, an Iranian proxy militia in Iraq, about 200 miles away, decided just by coincidence to launch a heavy suicide drone into this base specifically, just during that little time window. And hey, guess what? Hasn't been reported, but an Iranian jet, uh, sorry, Russian jet, uh, buzzed across that base just a few hours earlier. Um, How on earth that Iranian militia in Iraq knew that those air defense systems had been switched off for the first time in six months and decided just then to attack? So when we're calculating all of this, we shouldn't forget that the Russians have have a say in a lot of this, in particular what's happening in Syria. Yeah, on that point, there's a tweet from a friend, Wes Clark Jr., former SACUR, uh, from yesterday, which said, my opinion is that Putin knew the nature and timing of the initial Hamas attack against Israel, which is why he timed the uh, Avdivka offensive to start within 24 hours of it, aside from creating refugee flows into Europe to assist his authoritarian allies in the next election. Uh, Of course, that initiative has not gone terribly well for the Russians. In fact, it's been a disaster uh, for them. But it gets to another issue. And again, it's a sensitive issue, but I think we need to grapple with these things. 
uh, in the wake of an attack, horrific attack, attack like 9-11, attack like uh, 10-7 in uh, Israel, there is a natural emotional reaction to do something, to get involved, to strike back. Um, And from the point of view of the Israelis, no question that Hamas, particularly if this is the way they're going to behave, um, pose a threat to the to the well-being of Israeli citizens. What they do not do, despite what Pres- uh, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu said, is pose an existential threat to Israel. As Mark said, they're they're perhaps thirty thousand. I've seen estimates as high as forty thousand members of Hamas. Um, um, and they've got the ability to strike periodically and to do a lot of damage, but not, not to uh, tangle with or threaten in a meaningful way the existence of Israel. They do not pose a remote threat to the United States, nor, to be quite honest, do many of these other conflicts in the region where we have residual troops on the ground. Um, are we overreacting? Shouldn't we be more concerned about what's going on in the Indo-Pacific and Ukraine? Should, you know, I, I mean, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. I'm not saying we, can, we, we can't do something. Uh, but the risk of escalation, uh, which we will get to as, as sort of the third part of this discussion, is, is enormous. And keeping this in perspective is one way to avoid that risk of escalation. So cold calculus. What is the U.S. interest in this beside standing alongside a friend? Is that for me or, or for Mark? A fr- it's for you. <laughs> that's Charles, Charles, you're the guest. So that's a, Dave and that's I, I was really hoping someone anytime. might take that before me. That's, that's a tricky one. Um, <laughs> um, I think uh, what the what the past two weeks have shown from a strictly American perspective is that you cannot just paper over the problems of the Middle East. And I think that is by and large what we have seen in terms of a strategic policy position from both the previous administration and from this one. Um, the idea that, you know, tactical economic agreements, um, uh, you know, de facto sort of ceasefires that don't that are not then followed through with peace uh, resolutions and deals um, are going to bring long term stability to the region just doesn't add up. And I do think that Hamas has used uh, the fact that the, the, the US and some of the international community has prioritized Israel's regional normalization over and above any kind of uh, investment in the Israeli Palestinian process uh, to its advantage. And I think we're seeing in the protests all across the region, uh, the shifting positions, even of the UAE, that Israel's most reliable partner in the region is now coming out wholly and squarely against uh, Israeli action uh, in Gaza. Uh, Hamas has used that to its advantage. It's mobilized that reality. Um, and I think there does need to be some sort of strategic rethinking about how we deal with many of these issues. And, uh, and I've made that argument before in terms of Yemen, Syria, Palestine, and, and many other issues. Um, but to specifically answer your question, using that as the background, uh, I think the US needs to realize um, that if it wants the, the Middle East to be genuinely more st- a stable region, it has to 
balance out the equation in all of these long-running crises. Of course, this one is the is the longest running of them all. Um, and uh, yes, absolutely, we back the Israelis to respond. But we do what I think we've been doing, which is to slow it down, to uh, push restraint. I think that the emphasis on humanitarian assistance and hostage negotiations are in part a way to delay a ground incursion, uh, to allow calmer heads to perhaps prevail in terms of what the Israelis do next um, than if a ground incursion had happened or started uh, over a week ago. Um, but I, this isn't a very perfect answer, but I think we have to realize the long term rather than just prioritizing that short to medium uh, term uh, issues like papering over crises. So so one of the things I think we should uh, discuss here, and David, you know, you and I have, uh, have have certainly talked about this before, is is where have the U.S. diplomatic efforts been in the region over the last several years? And, you know, while everybody celebrated the Abraham Accords, um, I think I, I felt like I was one of the few who was kind of screaming into the wind. Um, it was a nice to have, but it didn't solve the fundamental issue was the Israel-Palestinian, uh, uh, you know, pr- problems, the wrong word, but but conflict. And, you know, I think it's come back to hurt us uh, on this. And, and you know, it's nice that, that you know, Jared Kushner can go have meetings, uh, you know, in, in Dubai and, and everyone can go ski um, at the indoor ski facility. Dubai Israelis can travel. Uh, but the fundamental question, you know, the United States should ask um, uh, and Israel should ask as well is, you know, for, first of all, are Israelis safe? Were Israelis safer because of the Abraham Accords? I think right now you can say no with the equivalent of 50,000 Americans being killed in a terrorist attack, 1,400 Israelis was a horrific uh, uh, issue. And from the United States policy perspective is, you know, did this make things safer in the region? And the answer is no as well. So, you know, when this all is settled, or perhaps as we start thinking about, um, you know, what to do about Gaza uh, after the conflict, uh, you know, I do think that the U.S. has to kind of take a reset again and understand that that you know tackling the intractable problem, which is the Israeli-Palestinian question, is something that has to be done and cannot be ignored. I think that's such an important point, Mark. Uh, and in fact, I'm in the midst, probably about fifty percent through a column that I'm doing for Haaretz, the Israeli paper, which is ma- makes essentially that point that the the one of the big problems, and it may have to do with the Abraham Accords, although. It's kind of been a central theme of the prime ministership of Bibi Netanyahu has been what somebody once a long time ago called memoricide, which is the idea of just to erase the memory. The goal was to just sort of say this Israeli-Palestinian thing doesn't matter. Um, And 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 there's a there's a deep danger in that. Um, I want to come back and hear Charles's response to this, but this is the point in the podcast where we take a break. We say to everybody who's not a member, hey, you should become a member because then you could listen to the whole podcast. All you have to do is go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, become a member, $5 a month. You get to hear all of all of our podcasts. And right now, that's a daily show every single day of the week on the news. Plus, it's an in-depth show virtually every single day of the week. And on some days of the week, more than one. So it's really a terrific deal. Uh, Lots and lots of great content from great experts like Charles. Uh, So if you're not a member, go become one. If you are a member, stand by. 